This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. The Great Adventure. Mr. Wixon did not send for father. They met by chance on the ferry boat to San Francisco, so that the warning he gave father was not premeditated. Had they not met accidentally, there would not have been any warning. Not that the outcome would have been different, however. Father came of stout old Mayflower stock, and the blood was imperative in him. Note, the Mayflower one of the first ships that carried colonies to America after the discovery of the New World. Descendants of these original colonists were for a while inordinately proud of their genealogy, but in time the blood became so widely diffused that it ran in the veins practically of all Americans. Ernest was right, he told me, as soon as he had returned home. Ernest is a very remarkable young man, and I'd rather see you his wife than the wife of Rockefeller himself or the King of England. What's the matter? 
I asked in alarm. The oligarchy is about to tread upon our faces, yours and mine. Wixon as much as told me so. He was very kind, for an oligarch. He offered to reinstate me in the university. What do you think of that? He, Wixon, a sordid money-grabber, has the power to determine whether I shall or shall not teach in the university of the state. But he offered me even better than that. Offered to make me president of some great college of physical sciences that is being planned. The oligarchy must get rid of its surplus somehow, you see. Do you remember what I told that socialist lover of your daughters? He said. I told him that we would walk upon the faces of the working class. And so we shall. As for you, I have for you a deep respect as a scientist. But if you throw your fortunes in with the working class, well, watch out for your face. That is all. And then he turned and left me. It means we'll have to marry earlier than you planned, was Ernest's comment when we told him. I could not follow his reasoning, but I was soon to learn it. It was at this time that the quarterly dividend of the Sierra Mills was paid, or rather, should have been paid, for father did not receive his. After waiting several days, father wrote to the secretary. Promptly came the reply that there was no record on the books of father's owning any stock, and a polite request for more explicit information. I'll make it explicit enough. Confound him! father declared, and departed for the bank to get the stock in question from his safe deposit box. Ernest is a very remarkable man, he said when he got back, and while I was helping him off with his overcoat. I repeat, my daughter, that young man of yours is a very remarkable young man. I had learned, whenever he praised Ernest in such fashion, to expect disaster. They have already walked upon my face, father explained. There was no stock. The box was empty. You and Ernest will have to get married pretty quickly. Father insisted on laboratory methods. He brought the Sierra Mills into court, but he could not bring the books of the Sierra Mills into court. He did not control the courts, and the Sierra Mills did. That explained it all. He was thoroughly beaten by the law, and the barefaced robbery held good. It is almost laughable now, when I look back on it, the way Father was beaten. He met Wixon accidentally on the street in San Francisco, and he told Wixon that he was a damned scoundrel. And then father was arrested for attempted assault, fined in the police court, and bound over to keep the peace. It was all so ridiculous that when he got home he had to laugh himself. But what a furor was raised in the local papers. There was grave talk about the bacillus of violence that infected all men who embraced socialism, and father with his long and peaceful life was instanced as a shining example of how the bacillus of violence worked. Also, it was asserted by more than one paper that father's mind had weakened under the strain of scientific study, and confinement in a state asylum for the insane was suggested. Nor was this merely talk. It was an imminent peril. But father was wise enough to see it. He had the bishop's experience to lessen from, and he lessened well. He kept quiet, no matter what injustice was perpetrated on him, and really, I think, surprised his enemies. There was the matter of the house, our home. A mortgage was foreclosed on it, and we had to give up possession. Of course, there wasn't any mortgage, and never had been any mortgage. The ground had been bought outright, and the house had been paid for when it was built, and house and lot had always been free and unencumbered. Nevertheless, there was the mortgage, properly and legally drawn up and signed, with a record of the payments of interest through a number of years. Father made no outcry. As he had been robbed of his money, so was he now robbed of his home and he had no recourse. The machinery of society was in the hands of those who were bent on breaking him. 
He was a philosopher at heart, and he was no longer even angry. "'I am doomed to be broken,' he said to me. "'But that is no reason that I should not try to be shattered as little as possible. "'These old bones of mine are fragile, and I've learned my lesson. "'God knows I don't want to spend my last days in an insane asylum.' "'Which reminds me of Bishop Morehouse, whom I've neglected for many pages. "'But first let me tell of my marriage. "'In the play of events my marriage sinks into insignificance, I know, "'so I shall barely mention it. "'Now we shall become real proletarians,' father said when we were driven from our home. I have often envied that young man of yours for his actual knowledge of the proletariat. Now I shall see and learn for myself. Father must have had strong in him the blood of adventure. He looked upon our catastrophe in the light of an adventure. No anger nor bitterness possessed him. He was too philosophic and simple to be vindictive, and he lived too much in the world of mind to miss the creature comforts we were giving up. So it was when we moved to San Francisco into four wretched rooms in the slums south of Market Street, that he embarked upon the adventure with the joy and enthusiasm of a child, combined with the clear sight and mental grasp of an extraordinary intellect. He really never crystallized mentally. He had no false sense of values. Conventional or habitual values meant nothing to him. The only values he recognized were mathematical and scientific facts. My father was a great man. He had the mind and the soul that only great men have. In ways he was even greater than Ernest than whom I have known none greater. Even I found some relief in our change of living. If nothing else, I was escaping from the organized ostracism that had been our increasing portion in the university town ever since the enmity of the nascent oligarchy had been incurred. And the change was to me likewise adventure, and the greatest of all, for it was love adventure. The change in our fortunes had hastened my marriage, and it was as a wife that I came to live in the four rooms on Pell Street in the San Francisco slum. And this out of all remains. I made Ernest happy. I came into his stormy life, not as a new perturbing force, but as one that made toward peace and repose. I gave him rest. It was the guerdon of my love for him. It was the one infallible token that I had not failed. To bring forgetfulness, or the light of gladness, into those poor tired eyes of his, what greater joy could have blessed me than that? Those dear tired eyes... He toiled as few men ever toiled, and all his lifetime he toiled for others. That was the measure of his manhood. He was a humanist and a lover, and he with his incarnate spirit of battle, his gladiator body, and his eagle spirit. He was as gentle and tender to me as a poet. He was a poet, a singer in deeds, and all his life he sang the song of man. And he did it out of sheer love of man, and for man he gave his life and was crucified. And all this he did, with no hope of future reward. In his conception of things there was no future life. He, who fairly burnt with immortality, denied himself immortality. Such was the paradox of him. He, so warm in spirit, was dominated by that cold and forbidding philosophy, materialistic monism. I used to refute him by telling him that I measured his immortality by the wings of his soul, and that I should have to live endless eons in order to achieve the full measurement where it he would laugh, and his arms would leap out to me, and he would call me his sweet metaphysician. And the tiredness would pass out of his eyes, and into them would flood the happy love-light that was in itself a new and sufficient advertisement of his immortality. Also, he used to call me his dualist, and he would explain how Kant, by means of pure reason, had abolished reason 
in order to worship God, and he drew the parallel and included me guilty of a similar act. And when I pleaded guilty, but defended the act as highly rational, he but pressed me closer and laughed as only one of God's own lovers could laugh. I was wont to deny that heredity and environment could explain his own originality and genius, any more than could the cold, groping finger of science catch and analyze and classify that elusive essence that lurked in the constitution of life itself. I held that space was an apparition of God, and that soul was a projection of the character of God, and when he called me his sweet metaphysician, I called him my immortal materialist. And so we loved and were happy. And I forgave him his materialism because of his tremendous work in the world, performed without thought of soul gain thereby. And because of his so exceeding modesty of spirit that prevented him from having pride and regal consciousness of himself and his soul. But he had pride. How could he have been an eagle and not have pride? His contention was that it was finer for a finite mortal speck of life to feel godlike than for a god to feel godlike. And so it was that he exalted what he deemed his mortality. He was fond of quoting a fragment from a certain poem. He had never seen the whole poem, and he had tried vainly to learn its authorship. I here give the fragment, not alone because he loved it, but because it epitomized the paradox that he was in the spirit of him and his conception of his spirit. For how can a man with thrilling and burning, and exaltation, recite the following, and still be mere mortal earth, a bit of fugitive force, an evanescent form. Here it is. Joy upon joy, and gain upon gain, are the destined rights of my birth, and I shout the praise of my endless days to the echoing edge of the earth. Though I suffer all deaths that a man can die to the uttermost end of time, I have deep-drained this, my cup of bliss, in every age and clime. The froth of pride, the tang of power, the sweet of womanhood. I drain the lees upon my knees, for, oh, the draught is good. I drink to life, I drink to death, and smack my lips with song. For when I die, another I shall pass the cup along. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my lord, was I, and I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky. For it is my world, my gorgeous world, the world of my dearest woes, from the first faint cry of the newborn to the rack of the woman's throes. Packed with the pulse of an unborn race, torn with the world's desire, the surging flood of my wild young blood would quench the judgment fire. I am man, 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 from the tingling flesh to the dust of my earthly goal, from the nestling gloom of the pregnant womb to the sheen of my naked soul, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the whole world leaps to my will, and the unslaked thirst of an Eden cursed shall harrow the earth. For its fill. Almighty God, when I drain life's glass of all its rainbow gleams, the hapless plight of eternal night shall be none too long for my dreams. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my lord, was I. And I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky, for it is my world, my gorgeous world, the world of my dear delight 
from the brightest gleam of the arctic stream to the dusk of my own love night. Ernest always overworked. His wonderful constitution kept him up, but even that constitution could not keep the tired look out of his eyes, his dear, tired eyes. He never slept more than four and one-half hours a night, yet he never found time to do all the work he wanted to do. He never ceased from his activities as a propagandist, and was always scheduled long in advance for lectures to working men's organizations. Then there was the campaign. He did a man's full work in that alone. With the suppression of the socialist publishing houses, his meager royalties ceased, and he was hard put to make a living, for he had to make a living in addition to all his other labor. He did a great deal of translating for the magazines on scientific and philosophic subjects, and coming home late at night, worn out from the strain of the campaign, he would plunge into his translating and toil on well into the morning hours. And in addition to everything, there was his studying. To the day of his death, he kept up his studies, and he studied prodigiously. And yet he found time in which to love me and make me happy. But this was accomplished only through my merging my life completely into his. I learned shorthand and typewriting and became his secretary. He insisted that I succeeded in cutting his work in half, and so it was that I schooled myself to understand his work. Our interests became mutual, and we worked together and played together. And then there were our sweet, stolen moments in the midst of our work. Just a word, or caress, or flash of love light, and our moments were sweeter for being stolen. For we lived on the heights, where the air was keen and sparkling, where the toil was for humanity and where sordidness and selfishness never entered. We loved love, and our love was never smirched by anything less than the best, and this out of all remains. I did not fail. I gave him rest. He who worked so hard for others, my dear, tired-eyed mortalist. End of chapter 11 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal matsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw The Bishop It was after my marriage that I chanced upon Bishop Morehouse, but I must give the events in their proper sequence. After his outbreak at the IPH convention, the bishop, being a gentle soul, had yielded to the friendly pressure brought to bear upon him and had gone away on a vacation but he returned more fixed than ever in his determination to preach the message of the church. To the consternation of his congregation, his first sermon was quite similar to the address he had given before the convention. Again, he said, and at length and with distressing detail, that the church had wandered away from the master's teaching and that mammon had been instated in the place of Christ. And the result was, willy-nilly, that he was led away to a private sanitarium for mental disease while in the newspapers appeared pathetic accounts of his mental breakdown and of the saintliness of his character. He was held a prisoner in the sanitarium. I called repeatedly, but was denied access to him, and I was terribly impressed by the tragedy of a sane, normal, saintly man being crushed by the brutal will of society. For the bishop was sane, and pure, and noble. As Ernest said, all that was the matter with him was that he had incorrect notions of biology and sociology, and because of his incorrect notions, he had not gone about it in the right way to rectify matters. What terrified me was the bishop's helplessness. 
If he persisted in the truth as he saw it, he was doomed to an insane ward. And he could do nothing. His money, his position, his culture could not save him. His views were perilous to society, and society could not conceive that such perilous views could be the product of a sane mind. Or, at least, it seems to me that such was society's attitude. But the bishop, in spite of the gentleness and purity of his spirit, was possessed of guile. He apprehended clearly his danger. He saw himself caught in the web, and he tried to escape from it. Denied help from his friends, such as father and Ernest and I could have given, he was left to battle for himself alone. And in the enforced solitude of the sanitarium, he recovered. He became again sane. His eyes ceased to see visions. His brain was purged of the fancy that it was the duty of society to feed the master's lambs. As I say, he became well, quite well, and the newspapers and the church people hailed his return with joy. I went once to his church. The sermon was of the same order as the ones he had preached long before his eyes had seen visions. I was disappointed, shocked. Had society then beaten him into submission? Was he a coward? Had he been bulldozed into recanting? Or had the strain been too great for him, and had he meekly surrendered to the juggernaut of the established? I called upon him in his beautiful home. He was woefully changed. He was thinner, and there were lines on his face which I had never seen before. He was manifestly distressed by my coming. He plucked nervously at his sleeve as we talked, and his eyes were restless, fluttering here, there, and everywhere, and refusing to meet mine. His mind seemed preoccupied, and there were strange pauses in his conversation, abrupt changes of topic, and an inconsecutiveness that was bewildering. Could this, then, be the firm, poised, Christ-like man I had known, with pure, limpid eyes and a gaze steady and unfaltering as his soul? He had been manhandled. He had been cowed into subjection. His spirit was too gentle. It had not been mighty enough to face the organized wolf-pack of society. I felt sad unutterably sad. He talked ambiguously, and he was so apprehensive of what I might say that I had not the heart to catechize him. He spoke in a faraway manner of his illness, and we talked disjointedly about the church, the alterations in the organ, and about petty charities, and he saw me depart with such evident relief that I should have laughed had not my heart been so full of tears. The poor little hero, if I had only known. He was battling like a giant, and I did not guess it. Alone, all alone, in the midst of millions of his fellow men, he was fighting his fight. Torn by his horror of the asylum and his fidelity to truth and the right, he clung steadfastly to truth and the right. But so alone was he that he did not dare to trust even me. He had learned his lesson well, too well. But I was soon to know. One day the bishop disappeared. He had told nobody that he was going away, and as the days went by and he did not reappear, there was much gossip to the effect that he had committed suicide while temporarily deranged. But this idea was dispelled when it was learned that he had sold all his possessions, his city mansion, his country house at Menlo Park, his paintings and collections, and even his cherished library. It was patent that he had made a clean and secret sweep of everything before he disappeared. This happened during the time when calamity had overtaken us in our own affairs, and it was not till we were well settled in our new home that we had opportunity really to wonder and speculate about the bishop's doings. And then everything was suddenly made clear. Early one evening, while it was yet twilight, I had run across the street and into the butcher's shop to get some chops for Ernest's supper. We called the last meal of the day supper in our new environment. Just at the moment I came out of the butcher's shop, a man emerged from the corner grocery that stood alongside. A queer sense of familiarity made me look again. 
but the man had turned and was walking rapidly away. There was something about the slope of the shoulders and the fringe of silver hair between coat collar and slouch hat that aroused vague memories. Instead of crossing the street, I hurried after the man. I quickened my pace, trying not to think the thoughts that formed unbidden in my brain. No, it was impossible. It could not be. Not in those faded overalls, too long in the legs and frayed at the bottoms. I paused, laughed at myself, and almost abandoned the chase. But the haunting familiarity of those shoulders and that silver hair. Again I hurried on. As I passed him, I shot a keen look at his face. Then I whirled around abruptly and confronted the bishop. He halted with equal abruptness and gasped. A large paper bag in his right hand fell to the sidewalk. It burst, and about his feet and mine bounced and rolled a flood of potatoes. He looked at me with surprise and alarm. Then he seemed to wilt away. The shoulders drooped with dejection, and he uttered a deep sigh. I held up my hand. He shook it, but his hand felt clammy. He cleared his throat in embarrassment, and I could see the sweat starting out on his forehead. It was evident that he was badly frightened. The potatoes, he murmured faintly. They are precious. Between us we picked them up and replaced them in the broken bag, which he now held carefully in the hollow of his arm. I tried to tell him my gladness at meeting him, and that he must come right home with me. Father will be rejoiced to see you, I said. We live only a stone's throw away. I can't, he said. I must be going. Goodbye. He looked apprehensively about him, as though dreading discovery, and made an attempt to walk on. "'Tell me where you live, and I shall call later,' he said, when he saw that I walked beside him, and that it was my intention to stick to him now that he was found. "'No,' I answered firmly. "'He must come now.' He looked at the potatoes spilling on his arm, and at the small parcels on his other arm. "'Really, it is impossible,' he said. "'Forgive me for my rudeness, if you only knew.' He looked as if he were going to break down, but the next moment he had himself in control. Besides, this food, he went on, it is a sad case. It is terrible. She is an old woman. I must take it to her at once. She is suffering from want of it. I must go at once. You understand? Then I will return. I promise you. Let me go with you, I volunteered. Is it far? He sighed again and surrendered. Only two blocks, he said. Let us hasten. Under the bishop's guidance, I learned something of my own neighborhood. I had not dreamed such wretchedness and misery existed in it. Of course, this was because I did not concern myself with charity. I had become convinced that Ernest was right when he sneered at charity as a poulticing of an ulcer. Remove the ulcer, was his remedy. Give to the worker his product. Pension as soldiers those who grow honorably old in their toil, and there will be no need for charity. Convinced of this, I toiled with him at the revolution, and did not exhaust my energy in alleviating the social ills that continuously arose from the injustice of the system. I followed the bishop into a small room, ten by twelve in a rear tenement, and there we found a little old German woman, sixty-four years old, the bishop said. She was surprised at seeing me, but she nodded a pleasant greeting and went on sewing on the pair of men's trousers in her lap. Beside her, on the floor, was a pile of trousers. The bishop discovered there was neither coal nor kindling and went out to buy some. I took up a pair of trousers and examined her work. Six cents, lady,' she said, nodding her head gently while she went on stitching. She stitched slowly, but never did she cease from stitching. She seemed mastered by the verb to stitch. "'For all that work?' I asked. "'Is that what they pay? How long does it take you?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'That's what they pay. 
Six cents for finishing. Two hours sewing on each pair. But the boss doesn't know that, she added quickly, betraying a fear of getting him into trouble. I'm slow. I've got the rheumatism in my hands. Girls work much faster. They finish in half that time. The boss is kind. He lets me take the work home, now that I'm old and the noise of the machine bothers my head. If it wasn't for his kindness, I'd starve. Yes, those who work in the shop get eight cents. But what can you do? There's not enough work for the young. The old have no chance. Often one pair is all I can get. Sometimes, like today, I'm given a pair to finish before night. I asked her the hours she worked, and she said it depended on the season. In the summer, when there is a rush order, I work from five in the morning to nine at night. But in the winter it is too cold. The hands do not early get over the stiffness. Then you must work later, till after midnight sometimes. Yes, it has been a bad summer, the hard times. God must be angry. This is the first work the boss has given me in a week. It is true, one cannot eat much when there is no work. Now I'm used to it. I have sowed all my life, in the old country and here in San Francisco. Thirty-three years. If you're sure of the rent, it is all right. The houseman is very kind, but he must have his rent. It is fair. He only charges three dollars for this room. That is cheap, but it is not easy for you to find all of three dollars every month. She ceased talking, and nodding her head, went on stitching. You have to be very careful as to how you spend your earnings, I suggested. She nodded emphatically. After the rent, it's not so bad. Of course, you can't buy meat, and there's no milk for the coffee. But always there is one meal a day, and often two. She said this last proudly. There was a smack of success in her words. But as she stitched on in silence, I noticed the sadness in her pleasant eyes and the droop of her mouth. The look in her eyes became far away. She rubbed the dimness hastily out of them. It interfered with her stitching. No, it's not the hunger that makes the heart ache, she explained. You get used to being hungry. It's for my child that I cry. It was the machine that killed her. It's true she worked hard, but I cannot understand. She was strong, and she was young. Only forty, and she worked only thirty years. She began young, it's true, but my man died. The boiler exploded down at the works, and what were we to do? She was ten, and she was very strong. But the machine killed her. Yes, it did. It killed her, and she was the fastest worker in the shop. I've thought about it often. And I know. That is why I cannot work in the shop. The machine bothers my head. Always I hear it saying, I did it, I did it. And it says that all day long. And then I think of my daughter. And I cannot work. The moistness was in her old eyes again, and she had to wipe it away before she could go on stitching. I heard the bishop stumbling up the stairs, and I opened the door. What a spectacle he was. On his back he carried half a sack of coal with kindling on top. Some of the coal dust had coated his face, and the sweat from his exertions was running in streaks. He dropped his burden in the corner by the stove and wiped his face on a coarse bandana handkerchief. I could scarcely accept the verdict of my senses. The bishop, black as a coal heaver, in a working man's cheap cotton shirt. One button was missing from the throat. And in overalls. That was the most incongruous of all. The overalls, frayed at the bottoms, dragged down at the heels and held up by a narrow leather belt around the hips such as laborers wear. Though the bishop was warm, the poor swollen hands of the old woman were already cramping with the cold, and before we left her the bishop had built the fire, while I had peeled the potatoes and put them on to boil. I was to learn, as time went by, that there were many cases similar to hers, and many worse, hidden away in the monstrous depths of the tenements in my neighborhood. We got back to find Ernest alarmed by my absence. 
After the first surprise of greeting was over, the bishop leaned back in his chair, stretched out his overall-covered legs, and actually sighed a comfortable sigh. We were the first of his old friends he had met since his disappearance, he told us, and during the intervening weeks he must have suffered greatly from loneliness. He told us much, though he told us more of the joy he had experienced in doing the master's bidding. For truly now, he said, I am feeding his lambs, and I have learned a great lesson. The soul cannot be ministered to till the stomach is appeased. His lambs must be fed bread and butter and potatoes and meat. After that, and only after that, are their spirits ready for more refined nourishment. He ate heartily of the supper I cooked. Never had he had such an appetite at our table in the old days. We spoke of it, and he said that he had never been so healthy in his life. I walk always now, he said, and a blush was on his cheek at the thought of the time when he rode in his carriage as though it were a sin not lightly to be laid. My health is better for it, he added hastily, and I am very happy, indeed most happy. At last I am a consecrated spirit. And yet there was in his face a permanent pain, the pain of the world that he was now taking to himself. He was seeing life in the raw, and it was a different life from what he had known within the printed books of his library. And you are responsible for all this, young man, he said directly to Ernest. Ernest was embarrassed and awkward. I, I warned you, he faltered. No, no, you misunderstand, the bishop answered. I speak not in reproach, but in gratitude. I have you to thank for showing me my path. You led me from theories about life to life itself. You pulled aside the veils from the social shams. You were light in my darkness, but now I, too, see the light. And I am very happy, only... He hesitated painfully, and in his eyes fear leaped large. Only the persecution. I harm no one. Why will they not let me alone? But it is not that. It is the nature of the persecution. I shouldn't mind if they cut my flesh with stripes, or burned me at the stake, or crucified me head downward. But it is the asylum that frightens me. Think of it, of me, in an asylum for the insane. It is revolting. I saw some of the cases at the sanitarium. They were violent. My blood chills when I think of it. And to be imprisoned for the rest of my life amid scenes of screaming madness. No, no, not that. Not that. It was pitiful. His hands shook, his whole body quivered and shrank away from the picture he had conjured. But the next moment he was calm. Forgive me, he said simply. It is my wretched nerves. And if the master's work leads there, so be it. Who am I to complain? I felt like crying aloud as I looked at him. Great bishop, oh hero, God's hero. As the evening wore on, we learned more of his doings. I sold my house. My houses, rather, he said. All my other possessions. I knew I must do it secretly, else they would have taken everything away from me. That would have been terrible. I often marvel these days at the immense quantity of potatoes two or three hundred thousand dollars will buy, or bread, or meat, or coal and kindling. He turned to Ernest. You are right, young man. Labor is dreadfully underpaid. I never did a bit of work in my life except to appeal aesthetically to Pharisees. I thought I was preaching the message, and yet I was worth half a million dollars. I never knew what half a million dollars meant until I realized how much potatoes and bread and butter and meat it could buy. And then I realized something more. I realized that all those potatoes and that bread and butter and meat were mine, and that I had not worked to make them. Then it was clear to me someone else had worked and made them and been robbed of them. And when I came down amongst the poor, I found those who had been robbed and who were hungry and wretched because they had been robbed. We drew him back to his narrative. And the money? 
I have it deposited in many different banks under different names. It can never be taken away from me because it can never be found. And it is so good, that money. It buys so much food. I never knew before what money was good for. I wish we could get some of it for the propaganda, Ernest said wistfully. It would do immense good. Do you think so? The bishop said. I do not have much faith in politics. In fact, I am afraid I do not understand politics. Ernest was delicate in such matters. He did not repeat his suggestion, though he knew only too well the sore straits the Socialist Party was in through lack of money. I sleep in cheap lodging houses, the bishop went on, but I am afraid and never stay long in one place. Also, I rent two rooms in working men's houses in different quarters of the city. It is a great extravagance, I know, but it is necessary. I make up for it in part by doing my own cooking, though sometimes I get something to eat in cheap coffee houses, and I have made a discovery. Tamales are very good when the air grows chilly late at night. Note. Tamales. A Mexican dish referred to occasionally in the literature of the times. It is supposed that it was warmly seasoned. No recipe of it has come down to us. Only they are so expensive. But I have discovered a place where I can get three for ten cents. They are not so good as the others, but they are very warming. And so I have at last found my work in the world, thanks to you, young man. It is the master's work. He looked at me, and his eyes twinkled. You caught me feeding his lambs, you know. And of course you will all keep my secret. He spoke carelessly enough, but there was real fear behind the speech. He promised to call upon us again, but a week later we read in the newspaper of the sad case of Bishop Morehouse, who had been committed to the Napa Asylum, and for whom there were still hopes held out. In vain we tried to see him, to have his case reconsidered or investigated, nor could we learn anything about him except the reiterated statements that slight hopes were still held for his recovery. Christ told the rich young man to sell all he had, Ernest said bitterly. The bishop obeyed Christ's injunction and got locked up in a madhouse. Times have changed since Christ's day. A rich man today who gives all he has to the poor is crazy. There is no discussion. Society has spoken. End of chapter 12 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org Recording by Matt Saw The General Strike Of course, Ernest was elected to Congress in the great socialist landslide that took place in the fall of 1912. One great factor that helped to swell the socialist vote was the destruction of Hearst. This the plutocracy found an easy task. It cost Hearst $18 million a year to run his various papers, and this sum, and more, he got back from the middle class in payment for advertising. The source of his financial strength lay wholly in the middle class. The trusts did not advertise. To destroy Hearst, all that was necessary was to take away from him his advertising. Note. William Randolph Hearst, a young California millionaire who became the most powerful newspaper owner in the country. His newspapers were published in all the large cities, and they appealed to the perishing middle class and to the proletariat. So large was his following that he managed to take possession of the empty shell of the old Democratic Party. He occupied an anomalous position, preaching an emasculated socialism combined with a nondescript sort of petit bourgeois capitalism. It was oil and water, and there was no hope for him, though for a short period he was a source of serious apprehension to the plutocrats. Note, the cost of advertising was amazing in those helter-skelter times. Only the small capitalists competed, and therefore they did the advertising. There being no competition where there was a trust, there was no need for the trust to advertise. 
The whole middle class had not yet been exterminated. The sturdy skeleton of it remained, but it was without power. The small manufacturers and small businessmen who still survived were at the complete mercy of the plutocracy. They had no economic nor political souls of their own. When the fiat of the plutocracy went forth, they withdrew their advertisements from the Hearst papers. Hearst made a gallant fight. He brought his papers out at a loss of a million and a half each month. He continued to publish the advertisements for which he no longer received pay. Again the fiat of the plutocracy went forth, and the small businessmen and manufacturers swamped him with a flood of notices that he must discontinue running their old advertisements. Hearst persisted. Injunctions were served on him. Still he persisted. He received six months' imprisonment for contempt of court in disobeying the injunctions, while he was bankrupted by countless damage suits. He had no chance. The plutocracy had passed sentence on him. The courts were in the hands of the plutocracy to carry the sentence out, and with Hearst crashed also to destruction the Democratic Party that he had so recently captured. With the destruction of Hearst and the Democratic Party, there were only two paths for his following to take. One was into the Socialist Party, the other was into the Republican Party. Then it was that we socialists reaped the fruit of Hearst's pseudo-socialistic preaching, for the great majority of his followers came over to us. The expropriation of the farmers that took place at this time would also have swelled our vote, had it not been for the brief and futile rise of the Grange Party. Ernest and the socialist leaders fought fiercely to capture the farmers, but the destruction of the socialist press and publishing houses constituted too great a handicap, while the mouth-to-mouth -mouth propaganda had not yet been perfected. So it was that politicians like Mr. Calvin, who were themselves farmers long since expropriated, captured the farmers and threw their political strength away in a vain campaign. The poor farmers, Ernest once laughed savagely. The trusts have them both coming and going. And that was really the situation. The seven great trusts, working together, had pulled their enormous surpluses and made a farm trust. The railroads controlling rates and the bankers and stock exchange gamesters controlling prices had long since bled the farmers into indebtedness. The bankers, and all the trusts for that matter, had likewise long since loaned colossal amounts of money to the farmers. The farmers were in the net. All that remained to be done was the drawing in of the net, this the farm trust proceeded to do. The hard times of 1912 had already caused a frightful slump in the farm markets, Prices were now deliberately pressed down to bankruptcy, while the railroads with extortionate rates broke the back of the farmer camel. Thus the farmers were compelled to borrow more and more, while they were prevented from paying back old loans. Then ensued the great foreclosing of mortgages and enforced collection of notes. The farmers simply surrendered the land to the farm trust. There was nothing else for them to do. And having surrendered the land, the farmers next went to work for the farm trust, becoming managers, superintendents, foremen, and common laborers. They worked for wages. They became villains, in short, serfs bound to the soil by a living wage. They could not leave their masters, for their masters composed the plutocracy. They could not go to the cities, for there also the plutocracy was in control. They had but one alternative, to leave the soil and become vagrants, in brief, to starve. And even there they were frustrated, for stringent vagrancy laws were passed and rigidly enforced. Of course, here and there, farmers and even whole communities of farmers escaped expropriation by virtue of exceptional conditions. But they were merely strays and did not count, and they were gathered in anyway during the following year. Note. The destruction of the Roman yeomanry proceeded far less rapidly than the destruction of the American farmers and small capitalists. There was momentum in the 20th century, while there was practically none in ancient Rome. 
Numbers of the farmers, impelled by an insane lust for the soil, and willing to show what beasts they could become, tried to escape expropriation by withdrawing from any and all market dealing. They sold nothing. They bought nothing. Among themselves, a primitive barter began to spring up. Their privation and hardships were terrible, but they persisted. It became quite a movement, in fact. The manner in which they were beaten was unique and logical and simple. The plutocracy, by virtue of its possession of the government, raised their taxes. It was the weak joint in their armor. Neither buying nor selling, they had no money, and in the end their land was sold to pay the taxes. Thus it was that in the fall of 1912 the socialist leaders, with the exception of Ernest, decided that the end of capitalism had come. What of the hard times and the consequent vast army of the unemployed? What of the destruction of the farmers and the middle class? And what of the decisive feat administered all along the line to the labor unions? The socialists were really justified in believing that the end of capitalism had come, and in themselves throwing down the gauntlet to the plutocracy. Alas, how we underestimated the strength of the enemy. Everywhere the socialists proclaimed their coming victory at the ballot box, while in unmistakable terms they stated the situation. The plutocracy accepted the challenge. It was the plutocracy, weighing and balancing, that defeated us by dividing our strength. It was the plutocracy through its secret agents, that raised the cry that socialism was sacrilegious and atheistic. It was the plutocracy that whipped the churches, and especially the Catholic Church, into line and robbed us of a portion of the labor vote. And it was the plutocracy, through its secret agents, of course, that encouraged the Grange Party and even spread it to the cities into the ranks of the dying middle class. Nevertheless, the socialist landslide occurred. But instead of a sweeping victory with chief executive officers and majorities in all legislative bodies, we found ourselves in the minority. It is true we elected 50 congressmen, but when they took their seats in the spring of 1913, they found themselves without power of any sort. Yet they were more fortunate than the Grangers, who captured a dozen state governments and who, in the spring, were not permitted to take possession of the captured officers. The incumbents refused to retire, and the courts were in the hands of the oligarchy. But this is too far in advance of events. I have yet to tell of the stirring times of the winter of 1912. The hard times at home had caused an immense decrease in consumption. Labor, out of work, had no wages with which to buy. The result was that the plutocracy found a greater surplus than ever on its hands. The surplus it was compelled to dispose of abroad. And, what of its colossal plans, it needed money. Because of its strenuous efforts to dispose of the surplus in the world market, the plutocracy clashed with Germany. Economic clashes were usually succeeded by wars, and this particular clash was no exception. The great German warlord prepared, and so did the United States prepare. The war cloud hovered dark and ominous. The stage was set for a world catastrophe. For in all the world were hard times, labor troubles, perishing middle classes, armies of unemployed, clashes of economic interests in the world market, and mutterings and rumblings of the socialist revolution. Note. For a long time, these mutterings and rumblings had been heard. As far back as 1906 A.D., Lord Avebury, an Englishman, uttered the following in the House of Lords. The unrest in Europe, the spread of socialism, and the ominous rise of anarchism are warnings to the governments and the ruling classes that the condition of the working classes in Europe is becoming intolerable. And that if a revolution is to be avoided, some steps must be taken to increase wages, reduce the hours of labor, and lower the prices of the necessaries of life. The Wall Street Journal, a stock gamester's publication, in commenting upon Lord Avery's speech, said, These words were spoken by an aristocrat and a member of the most conservative body in all Europe. That gives them all the more significance. 
They contain more valuable political economy than is to be found in most of the books. They sound a note of warning. Take heed, gentlemen of the War and Navy Departments. At the same time, Sidney Brooks, writing in America in Harper's Weekly, said, You will not hear the socialists mentioned in Washington. Why should you? The politicians are always the last people in this country to see what is going on under their noses. They will jeer at me when I prophesy, and prophesy with the utmost confidence, that at the next presidential election the socialists will poll over a million votes. The oligarchy wanted the war with Germany, and it wanted the war for a dozen reasons. In the juggling of events such a war would cause, in the reshuffling of the international cards and the making of new treaties and alliances, the oligarchy had much to gain. And furthermore, the war would consume many national surpluses, reduce the armies of unemployed that menaced all countries, and give the oligarchy a breathing space in which to perfect its plans and carry them out. Such a war would virtually put the oligarchy in possession of the world market. Also, such a war would create a large standing army that need never be disbanded, while in the minds of the people would be substituted the issue America versus Germany, in place of socialism versus oligarchy. And truly the war would have done all these things had it not been for the socialists. A secret meeting of the Western leaders was held in our four tiny rooms in Pell Street. Here was first considered the stand the socialists were to take. It was not the first time we had put our foot down upon war, but it was the first time we had done so in the United States. After our secret meeting, we got in touch with the national organization, and soon our code cables were passing back and forth across the Atlantic between us and the International Bureau. Note. It was at the very beginning of the 20th century A.D. that the international organization of the socialists finally formulated their long-maturing policy on war. Epitomized their doctrine was, why should the workingmen of one country fight with the workingmen of another country for the benefit of their capitalist masters? On May 21st, 1905 A.D., when war threatened between Austria and Italy, the socialists of Italy, Austria, and Hungary held a conference at Trieste and threatened a general strike of the working men of both countries in case war was declared. This was repeated the following year, when the Morocco affair threatened to involve France, Germany, and England. The German socialists were ready to act with us. There were over five million of them many of them in the standing army, and in addition, they were on friendly terms with the labor unions. In both countries, the socialists came out in bold declaration against the war and threatened the general strike. And in the meantime, they made preparation for the general strike. Furthermore, the revolutionary parties in all countries gave public utterance to the socialist principle of international peace that must be preserved at all hazards, even to the extent of revolt and revolution at home. The general strike was the one great victory we American socialists won. On the 4th of December, the American minister was withdrawn from the German capital. That night, a German fleet made a dash on Honolulu, sinking three American cruisers and a revenue cutter and bombarding the city. Next day, both Germany and the United States declared war, and within an hour, the socialists called the general strike in both countries. For the first time, the German warlord faced the men of his empire who made his empire go. Without them, he could not run his empire. The novelty of the situation lay in that their revolt was passive. They did not fight. They did nothing. And by doing nothing, they tied their warlord's hands. He would have asked for nothing better than an opportunity to loose his war dogs on his rebellious proletariat. But this was denied him. He could not loose his war dogs. Neither could he mobilize his army to go forth to war. Nor could he punish his recalcitrant subjects. Not a wheel moved in his empire. Not a train ran. Not a telegraphic message went over the wires. 
for the telegraphers and railroad men had ceased work, along with the rest of the population. And as it was in Germany, so it was in the United States. At last, organized labor had learned its lesson. Beaten decisively on its own chosen field, it had abandoned that field and come over to the political field of the socialists. For the general strike was a political strike. Besides, organized labor had been so badly beaten that it did not care. It joined in the general strike out of sheer desperation. The workers threw down their tools and left their tasks by the millions. Especially notable were the machinists. Their heads were bloody. Their organization had apparently been destroyed. Yet out they came, along with their allies in the metalworking trades. Even the common laborers and all unorganized labor ceased work. The strike had tied everything up so that nobody could work. Besides, the women proved to be the strongest promoters of the strike. They set their faces against the war. They did not want their men to go forth to die. Then also the idea of the general strike caught the mood of the people. It struck their sense of humor. The idea was infectious. The children struck in all the schools, and such teachers as came went home again from deserted classrooms. The general strike took the form of a great national picnic, and the idea of the solidarity of labor, so evidenced, appealed to the imagination of all. And, finally, there was no danger to be incurred by the colossal frolic. When everybody was guilty, how was anybody to be punished? The United States was paralyzed. No one knew what was happening. There were no newspapers, no letters, no dispatches. Every community was as completely isolated as though 10,000 miles of primeval wilderness stretched between it and the rest of the world. For that matter, the world had ceased to exist, and for a week the state of affairs was maintained. In San Francisco, we did not know what was happening even across the bay in Oakland or Berkeley. The effect on one's sensibilities was weird, depressing. It seemed as though some great cosmic thing lay dead. The pulse of the land had ceased to beat. Of a truth, the nation had died. There were no wagons rumbling on the streets, no factory whistles, no hum of electricity in the air, no passing of streetcars, no cries of newsboys. Nothing but persons who at rare intervals went by like furtive ghosts, themselves oppressed and made unreal by the silence. And during that week of silence, the oligarchy was taught its lesson. And while it learned the lesson, the general strike was a warning. It should never occur again. The oligarchy would see to that. At the end of the week, as had been prearranged, the telegraphers of Germany and the United States returned to their posts. Through them, the socialist leaders of both countries presented their ultimatum to the rulers. The war should be called off, or the general strike would continue. It did not take long to come to an understanding. The war was declared off, and the populations of both countries returned to their tasks. It was this renewal of peace that brought about the alliance between Germany and the United States. In reality, this was an alliance between the emperor and the oligarchy for the purpose of meeting their common foe, the revolutionary proletariat of both countries. And it was this alliance that the oligarchy afterwards so treacherously broke when the German socialists rose and drove the warlord from his throne. It was the very thing the oligarchy had played for, the destruction of its great rival in the world market. With the German emperor out of the way, Germany would have no surplus to sell abroad. By the very nature of the socialist state, the German population would consume all that it produced. Of course, it would trade abroad certain things it produced for things it did not produce, but this would be quite different from an unconsumable surplus. I'll wager the oligarchy finds justification, Ernest said, when its treachery to the German emperor became known. 
as usual, the oligarchy will believe it has done right. And sure enough, the oligarchy's public defense for the act was that it had done it for the sake of the American people whose interests it was looking out for. It had flung its hated rival out of the world market and enabled us to dispose of our surplus in that market. And the howling folly of it is that we are so helpless that such idiots really are managing our interests, was Ernest's comment. They have enabled us to sell more abroad, which means that we'll be compelled to consume less at home. End of chapter 13 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org